Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Maloff. Tonight on the Environmental Justice Report this Christmas, we're going to discuss what would Jesus do? You know, it's Christmas Eve 2020. And again, this isn't COVID. My voice doesn't sound this way for a re- because of COVID. It sounds this way because I have asthma. But let's go on. It's Christmas Eve 2020. In the year of COVID and all the challenges it presents, you would think that those possessing more material blessings would come to some realization of their moral responsibility to others. But that hasn't been the case. Instead, we face an even crueler privileged class, far more entrenched in their own selfish needs. So on this Christmas Eve, I'm asking, what would Jesus do regarding environmental justice? This episode will explore the moral obligation that Jesus set forth to be good stewards of this planet and all life on it. Additionally, I will explore the, excuse me, additionally, I will explore the immorality of environmental injustice, which usually presents itself as a byproduct of racism and economic caste. So come join us because we're going to be talking and delving further into the notion of morality far beyond any duties to our own families. But first, some background on various Christian voices regarding environmental justice. Now, there's been major Christian denominations that talk about or endorse the biblical calling of our stewardship of God's creation and responsibility for its care. But it doesn't seem to filter down to the flock. So according to some social science research, um, conservative Christians and members of the Christian right, no surprise there, are usually less concerned about issues of environmentalism. Um, But there are quite a few Christians that are environmental activists. And we just don't see it in the media. You think, why? Well, you know, the major polluters have a vested interest in in environmentalists that are secular not working together with religious environmentalists. So it's called green Christianity. And it really combines environmental thinking with theological reflection on nature. And it deals with Christian liturgical and spiritual practices that center on environmental issues, as well as Christian-based activism in the environmental movement. Green Christianity refers to a very diverse group of Christians, actually, who emphasize the biblical or theological basis of protecting and celebrating the environment. Now, I see I have a caller from the 404 um, uh, area code, but I'm not going to answer. We're not taking calls. This is a talk. It's a show. Um, If you want to be part of the peanut gallery, go elsewhere, at least right now. So basic beliefs. Christianity does actually have a long historical tradition of reflection on nature and our responsibility to it. It also has a strong tendency towards anthropology anthropocentrism, all right, Um, and that's mentioned by environmentalist Lynn Townsend White. Um, You know, once again, we have a schism going on here. I need to move on. But in Genesis 1 to 6, 
2.8, God instructs humanity to manage creation in certain ways. And here's the phrase, quote, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now, unfortunately, what has become known as the prosperity gospel, people like Joel Osteen, have twisted this instruction as an excuse to destroy whatever they need to increase wealth. And that they do that by focusing on the idea of subduing the earth and having dominion in its resources. And that is not what that means. You have to remember the first Bible, the Old Testament, it was written in Aramaic and then in Hebrew. These languages do not readily translate into Romance languages like English. But I'll move on. The main difference between green Christians and the prosperity gospel adherents is that green Christians point out, they really focus on the biblical doctrine that it says we have to be good stewards, that we are supposed to take care of this earth and all the creatures on it, but we don't own it, and that the earth remains the Almighty's, and it doesn't actually belong to us humans. We're just basically renting it. Leviticus 25:23 states, quote, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants, end quote. But, be, but once again, you have this schism going on. And the main, the, the main secular public never finds out that there are Christian environmentalists. Even evangelicals, and I don't mean to say even in evangelicals, but the evangelical movement, there are members that also speak to the needs of environmental stewardship, and they use the phrase creation care to indicate the religious um, commandment to take care of this earth. And once again, some of these organizations, if they do have an evangelical genesis, include AROCA and the Evangelical Climate Initiative, as well as the Evangelical Environmental Network. Um, but again, we have prominent members of the Christian right. Um, most of them disagree with environmentalism, but there were a few that broke with the Bush administration and other conservative politics regarding the issue of climate change. Christianity Today, for instance, endorsed the McCain-Lieberman bill many years ago. It was defeated and it was by the Republican Congress and opposed by Bush. But according to magazine, quote, Christians should make it clear to governments and businesses that we are willing to adapt our lifestyles and support steps towards changes that protect our environment, end quote. So there is actually some movement and, and some, some history behind Christian environmentalists. Um, Pope Francis published an, an encyclical, and I'm probably mispronouncing this name, Lodato Sai, from the Latin, it, it um, translates into be praised on the care of our common home. And Pope Francis really readily endorses climate action, and um, he's made cases on Christian environmentalism. Um, to quote him, he says, quote, take, care of good, take good care of creation. St. Francis wanted that. People occasionally forgive, but nature never does. If we don't take care of the environment, there's no way of getting around it. So we're going to move on down. We're going to go from the 
the basis of Christian environmentalists to a man that I consider not only a Christian environmentalist, but someone who comes as close to the teachings of Jesus as humanly possible. And that's Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II, who is also spearheading the Poor People Campaign. And he wrote um, an article that was published by Spread titled Ecological Justice is a Moral Issue, and it is. He talks about how toxic waste from multinational corporations and energy companies has been dumped into wells and rivers with no regard for the safety of people that live in those areas or the general environment. He points out how all that pollution seeps into the drinking water and the air and winds up causing multiple health problems. Um, He's held, well, he held that one in ecological justice organizing tour and he was joined by former Vice President Al Gore, as well as his daughter, Karana Gore. This was in 2018. And Karana is director of the Center for Earth Ethics at Union Theological Seminary. There were also impacted residents in the areas of those toxic waste dumps. And the residents who live near Duke Energy's coal-fired steam station, they talked about waking up in the morning years ago. Excuse me. Oh! And their cars were covered in coal dust overnight. <clears throat> it's hard to imagine. Excuse me. <clears throat> and now the coal, you know, there's there's storage in coal ash ponds, but the heavy metals from that coal has seeped into the well water that these people drink, and that's caused multiple health problems. A Northampton County resident who attended the tour said came because this person said that their community was killing them. So people all over the country have been victims of toxic waste dumping, whether it's chemical toxic waste or nuclear toxic waste. Here in my hometown of St. Louis, we have Westlake Landfill, where uh, basically nuclear spent nuclear fuel rods were illegally dumped. You also have Eden, North Carolina, Wells were contaminated by coal ash, courtesy of Duke Energy. Towns along Cape Fear River that was contaminated by Gen X chemical spills from the Timor's Chemical Company. You have indigenous tribes that have landed uh, along the Atlantic Coast Pipeline Route. You have people who live near open pits of industrial hog waste and factory feedlots. And again, we're starting to have that problem here in Missouri. So you know, basically you have 100 and approximately 140 million Americans in 2018, that was, living in poverty who are most at risk of environmental health issues. Now we have more after COVID. And these are the same people that are going to be unable to benefit from the profits of the corporations that caused the, poverty, that caused the pollution in the first place. And I'm just going to say it, Reverend Barber hits this issue on the head. But the issue is actually about systemic poverty and systemic racism. And this is where the talk that he gave in 2018 takes a dramatic turn. Unless we address those issues of systemic poverty and systemic racism, people that have no access to health care, people that have basically no political power except except the power that's gained by hitting the streets and risking arrest, 
these are the people that are the most victimized, and these are the people that are standing up with Reverend Barber. And um, impacted, but there was one resident named Bobby Jones who said, quote, these are the voices needed to fix the laws, public policies, and systems that are currently destroying people's lives and the environment. I've knocked on too many doors where people have lost loved ones, and then you see this giant company is completely in denial about its role. And, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, Reverend Barber talks about the cruel indifference of politicians and calls them out as immoral because they don't care where a billion-dollar corporation dumps waste as long as they get benefit of their monetary, shall we say, support. Um, investing in renewable energy is not something they're going to do unless they can basically finagle it and, and basically deceive the public into that particular renewable being something that really isn't renewable and benefits these these polluting industries. <clears throat> this article talks about how in North Carolina alone, as of 2018, there were 1 million uninsured people, and uh, approximately half of them could receive coverage with Medicaid expansion. But the same politicians that refused to expand Medicaid in North Carolina coincidentally also refused to renew the Voting Rights Act. <coughs> These are the same politicians that refused to push for living wages, such as the fight for $15 an hour. They oppose immigrant rights. And the Reverend Barber really points out that environmental justice isn't an issue of the political left or the political right or the center. And it's not black or white. It is a moral issue. And that's true. It is. Pollution doesn't discriminate. But we know that the sources of pollution benefit the wealthy while harming everyone else, especially the poor. Do you honestly think that a corporation would be allowed to dump coal ash into the drinking water of the same wealthy suburb where George W. Bush's relatives live? No, wouldn't happen. Wouldn't happen. This is all about basically dividing the public and treating the majority of us who are not part of the billionaire class as acceptable collateral damage and nothing more. So, again, Reverend Barber's campaign, the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. It's been going on for a couple of years now. It's been led by repairers of the breach. And it's in partnership with other with other groups. And the idea is to bring about some real justice. But that means that all of us have to get have to come together, brotherhood and sisterhood, to fight for our rights. And you know that the two party system doesn't want that to happen. <coughs> Excuse me. So now I'm going to talk about principles of environmental justice. This is from the NRDC. I'm just going to read it. It's something you need to think about. And it was written by groups that were people of color. Quote, we the people of color gathered together at this multinational people of color environmental leadership summit to begin to build a national and international movement of all peoples of color to fight the destruction and taking 
of our lands and communities to hereby reestablish our spiritual interdependence to the sacredness of our Mother Earth and celebrate each of our cultures, languages, and beliefs about the natural world and our roles in healing ourselves to ensure environmental justice, to promote economic alternatives which would contribute to the development of environmentally safe livelihoods, and to secure our political, economic, and cultural liberation that has been denied for over 500 years of colonization and oppression, resulting in the poisoning of our communities and land and the genocide of our people to affirm and adopt these principles of environmental justice. <coughs> Excuse me, people. I'm sorry, folks. So here they are. Number one, environmental justice affirms the sacredness of Mother Earth, ecological unity, and the interdependence of all species, and the right to be free from ecological destruction. Number two, demands that public policy be based on mutual respect and justice for all people, free from any form of discrimination or bias. Three, mandates the right to ethical, balanced, and responsible uses of land and renewable resources in the interest of a sustainable planet for humans and other living things. <coughs> Four, calls for universal protection from nuclear testing, extraction, production, and disposal of toxic, hazardous waste and poisons, and nuclear testing that threatens the fundamental right to clean air, land, water, and food. Affirms the fundamental right to political, economic, cultural, and environmental self-determination of all people. Demands the cessation of the production of all toxins, hazardous waste, and radioactive materials, and that all past and current producers be held strictly accountable to the people for detoxification and the containment at the point of production. Seven, demands the right to participate as equal partners at every level of decision-making, including needs assessment, planning, implementation, enforcement, and evaluation. <coughs> Eight, affirms the right of all workers to a safe and healthy work environment without being forced to choose between an unsafe livelihood and, an, and unemployment. It also affirms the right of those who work at home to be free from environmental hazards. <coughs> Number nine, protects the right of victims of environmental injustice to receive full compensation and reparations for damages as well as quality health care. Ten, considers governmental acts of environmental injustice a violation of international law, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, and the United Nations Convention on Genocide. Eleven, must recognize a special legal and natural relationship of native, native peoples to the U.S. government through treaties, agreements, compacts, and covenants affirming sovereignty and self-determination. Twelve, affirms the need for urban and rural ecological policies to clean up and rebuild our cities and rural areas in balance with nature, honoring the cultural integrity of all our communities and provided fair access for all to the full range of resources. 13, calls for the strict enforcement of principles of informed consent and a halt to the testing of experimental reproductive and medical procedures and vaccinations on people of color. 
opposes the destructive operations of multinational corporations, opposes military occupation, repression, and exploitation of lands, peoples, and cultures, and other life forms. 16. <clears throat> Calls for the education of present and future generations, which emphasizes social and environmental issues based on our experience and an appreciation of our diverse cultural perspectives. And 17, these are all principles of environmental justice. Number 17, once again, environmental justice requires that we as individuals make personal and consumer choices to consume as little of Mother Earth's resources and to produce as little waste as possible and make the conscious decision to challenge and reprioritize our lifestyles to ensure the health of the natural world of present and future generations. Now, this document, which I've, I've talked about before, came from the Delegates to the First National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit, which was held in D.C. in 1991. Think about that for a minute. Nothing, very, very little has been done since the 90s, the early 90s. Again, what would Jesus do? I don't think that the way Jesus preached, that he would have sanctioned the poisoning of poor people and people of color for profit. I just don't. And Reverend Raphael Warnock, who is now running, who's in dead heat for the U.S. Senate seat in Georgia against Kelly Leffler, apparently is of the same mindset. In 2019, he was at a meeting with former U.S. President, Vice President Al Gore, as, long as, as well as with other environmental justice thinkers, and they were part of the Climate Realities Project's 40th Climate Reality Leadership Corps, and it was in Atlanta. And the Reverend Raphael Warnock, again running against Kelly Leffler, um, basically hosted an interfaith meeting at his church, the Ebenezer Baptist Church, on climate with Al Gore and Reverend Barber. Now, the Ebenezer Baptist Church was formerly Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s church. So <clears throat> there's some real history here. <clears throat> so we know, the, you know, the way the mainstream media has pushed this, this tie uh, Reverend Warnock's been painted as just another liberal. They very skillfully evade the fact that he is a Christian reverend. So he's, yeah, yes, part of the left. Reverend Warnock basically spoke about this, and there was a, he, he helped hold this public interfaith mass meeting at his church with Reverend Barber and Al Gore, and the title was A Moral Call to action on the climate crisis. Here's what Reverend Warnock said, quote, while the damage being done to the environment right now impacts us all, it continues to have a disproportionate impact on the poor, the black and the brown, at home and around the world. That's why civil rights and human rights activists must stand with climate change activists and offer a vision of the beloved community that defends the dignity of every human being as our sister or brother and the earth as our mother. 
Dr. King's words ring with new meaning. Quote, we are all tied together in a single garment of destiny, end quote. As far as I'm concerned, that says a lot about Reverend Raphael Warnock. I don't live in Georgia, but if I did, he has my vote. So a little more about him. Reverend Warnock grew up in Savannah, Georgia. He attended Morehouse College. He received his Ph.D. and was ordained in the ministry. And he became senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, which was the pulpit that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. headed up. On renewable energy and energy efficiency, Reverend Warnock from his website said, quote, that he, quote, believes in working towards a clean economy that will create jobs, reduce pollution, and produce a world that our children can inherit. Okay. On climate change, Reverend Warnock was quoted as saying on his website, the flooding and extreme weather we've seen in coastal Georgia and across the south are sobering reminders of how devastating climate change can be in our daily lives, especially in underserved and rural communities. End quote. And it should be said that he supports efforts to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords. He wants to reverse rollbacks on EPA standards for clean air and clean water that the Trump administration pushed. And he wants to invest in green infrastructure to protect Georgia's coastline from rising sea levels. So, Reverend Warnock is a person of faith. And as a non-Christian, I can say that both he and Reverend Barber's view of Christianity is one that, as a liberal Jew, I feel quite comfortable with because I feel the same way. So on high-risk energy, coal, nuclear, oil, and gas, Reverend Warnock said on his website that he would hold polluters and utility companies accountable. He was quoted as saying, quote, too often, Fossil fuel lobbyists and politicians have taken advantage of the revolving door between corporate boardrooms and political backrooms so much that we cannot tell the difference between the two, end quote. And actually, the revolving door between what these corporate people and political people has become so incestuous that it is at the heart of this massive corruption in our government, both parties. It's time to hold politicians accountable. Now, Reverend Barber, once again, published a story in The Atlantic. And I believe this was published in 2019. He just titled it very simply, America's Moral Malady. And it's true. You know, we're talking about what would Jesus do regarding environmental justice. And Reverend Reverend Barber nails it on the head because this is our moral malady. And he talks about the summer of 66 when Dr. King was visiting homes in a little um, town called Marks, Mississippi. And he remembered, you know, there were hundreds of children in 1966 in this little area who didn't have shoes. And one mother told Dr. King her children didn't have any clothes for school. And it was said that Dr. King just wept openly at the the indecent treatment of the poor. <clears throat> and he was quoted, 
Dr. King was quoted as saying, quote, they didn't even have any blankets to cover their children up on a cold night. And I said to myself, God does not like this. We are going to say in no uncertain terms that we aren't going to accept it any longer. They've got to go to Washington in big numbers. And this was before, you know, and, and, and turning from 1966 going to 1968, Dr. King um, brought together a group of over 50 leaders to basically to join his Poor People's Campaign, of which Reverend Barber has renewed. And these leaders represented black belt sharecroppers, white Appalachian coal miners, Chicano farm workers, American Indians, all of them. And Dr. King was quoted as saying, of the poor, quote, both white and Negro, living in a cruelly unjust society. If they can be helped to take action together, they will do so with a freedom and a power that will be a new and unsettling force in our complacent national life, end quote. He went on to say that, quote, unless we, he basically started talking about a radical revolution of values, and that's what we're really talking about. We're not talking about as basically shifting farther to the left or to the right or the center. That's not going to save us. A movement that doesn't allow corporates to co-opt the narrative, to co-opt the frame, so that we are building the moral narrative that the idea of environmental justice goes hand in hand with economic and political justice, and that this is an issue of morality. This is our moral narrative. We can no longer allow the, the public relations firms that craft these very slick commercials to steal or co-opt, as the kids say, our narrative. We can no longer allow people to go to their churches like Joel Osteen's church with the prosperity gospel, where they're allowed to believe that they're rich or well-off because they deserve to be, and that they don't have to actually consider their actions in light of other people or the planet. I mean, think of, on this Christmas Eve, think of how how tempting that message is, especially among evangelicals. And evangelicals is the prosperity gospel. One, they're told, if you're wealthy, it's because you're virtuous. And the good Lord, you know, made you rich. But they're also told that they're forgiven, and, and forgiveness is lovely, but they're told they're forgiven for anything, any action, no matter how evil, as long as they say the right words and claim they believe. It's all wiped clean, which means that they have no incentive to do the right thing. Now, there are some people that are more mature than that, but most adults are not. I'm sad to say. So we have to change that moral narrative. And the left has it. We just have to work together. This isn't about how far to the left you are or whether you're a centrist or even if you're conservative on a few other things. This is about a moral narrative that says that if you work hard, if you, if you are fair in your dealings with other people, you deserve 
a, a decent wage. You deserve health care. You deserve a clean environment where your children can grow and, and, and be healthy. And you deserve the same political power as a, a multi-billionaire like Jeff Bezos. The fact is, the billionaire class should have no more political power than the poorest of the poor. And I think that that is very consistent with the original teachings of Jesus. That Reverend Barber talks in this article about how Dr. King, the preacher him, knew this type of moral revival couldn't just be spoken. And it couldn't just be spoken because more often than not, through manipulation, poor people are often pitted against each other. That's why you see low-income whites supporting Trump. Some of it is racism on their part, I'm ashamed to say. But some of it is because they've been manipulated. And once again, it's, they believe that, that if it's this other group that's been scapegoated, everything will be fine. But it's not. And right now, Reverend Barber saying that now we're facing a crisis, and we see it more with COVID, a national crisis that is far more intense than what rocked the U.S. in 1968. You know, Dr. King analyzed that there were, quote, interlocking systems of violence kept middle-income and poor people down, and that these interlocking systems of violence were both literal and metaphorical. And he called, them, he called out racism, poverty, and militarism, otherwise known as the triplets. And this was flying many Americans to the lives of the fellow human beings in places like Marx. And, you know, until a poor people's campaign forces Americans, compels them to see the alien them as part of us, then we're not going to make it, you know. And there's a quote here that says, in the richest society in human history, nearly half of the population lives in poverty or is struggling to make ends meet. That's obscene. So Reverend Barber goes on, and again, this is consistent with what would Jesus do. And Reverend Barber, in his article, identifies four diseases that are all interconnected, that threaten our nation's social and moral health. And these four diseases are, you could, uh, conservatives love to talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These four diseases, these are the four horsemen of the wealth apocalypse and the corruption apocalypse. And they are racism, poverty, environmental devastation, and yes, the war economy. And they're all sanct, and according to Reverend Barber, quote, they, they are, quote, sanctified by the heresy of Christian nationalism, end quote. And he goes on to talk about, in 2016, white rage, to use his words, quote, white rage propelled the candidate endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan into the White House. And we know who that is, the evil orange one. There's, there's no guesswork here. No time did Donald Trump try to hide his racism. It was there. And he was, he was bold about it. And then 
Reverend Barber goes on to say, after what happened in Charlottesville, you had nearly every politician in the U.S. condemning hate, what they called, quote, hate, after the violence by basically white supremacists, neo-Nazis that, that, that caused mayhem in Charlottesville and murdered. To quote Reverend Barber, quote, racism and white supremacy, however, are not about hate. They are about power, end quote. And it's true. And Reverend Barber goes on to say, the question isn't whether these politicians verbally condemn hate. You know, it's easy to speak the word. The question is whether or not they are promoting a policy agenda of white supremacy or whether they are just enabling a policy agenda of white supremacy by doing nothing or whether they are promoting a policy agenda of white supremacy. My own home state, U.S. Senator Roy Blunt, who is, I believe, number three or four in the national GOP leadership team, he loves to parade around as being someone who is not racist, who is not, you know, working hand-in-hand with what can only be called these neo-Nazis. And he points out the fact that his second wife is a Jewish, like me. Well, that's nice. But when you remain silent, when these things happen, or when you speak the words but, but do nothing to stop the Nazism that has been going on, then that means that people like Roy Blunt are complicit, in my opinion. And I don't buy it. So, again, what would Jesus do? Jesus would not be supporting what happened in Charlottesville. Jesus would not be turning a blind eye to this hate. And, again, Reverend Barber has it. That quote is brilliant. Quote, racism and white supremacy, however, are not about hate. They are about power, end quote. And that's true. And the politicians, the ones that are not true believers of this hate, they don't care. All they care about is maintaining their power and their wealth. But that means that they are complicit and they are, and they are every bit as guilty as every white nationalist and neo-Nazi that's been out there. So, you know, once again, you have the Supreme Court who gutted a crucial provision of the Voting Rights Act. Okay, it was documented in the Atlantic and all over, which allowed states to reenact some Jim Crow tricks to keep blacks from voting or to make it almost impossible for them to vote. There's nothing new here. We know that environmental dangers disproportionately hurt the poorest among us. You don't have to look any further than in Flint, Michigan. People of low income, the poor can buy unleaded gasoline, but again, according to NPR, they can't get unleaded water from the tap. There was a story that ran in 2016, lead-laced water in Flint, a step-by-step looking at the makings of a crisis Again, we've all heard the story now, but it shouldn't have taken so long to get the story out. Oil companies are drilling for natural gas on Apache land. They are penetrating the aquifers, which affects all of our drinking water. 
coal ash is spilling into rivers, again, which contaminates our drinking water. Pipelines are built through sacred territory. Do you honestly believe that Jesus would, would have disrespected other religions? I don't think so. So according to Reverend Barber, and it's a big quote here, there's only one way out for people directly harmed by the economic and political system to fight as one against the few who benefit from it, end quote. And I agree. The war economy makes things worse still. You know, the Republicans in Congress, they, they balked at sending everybody $1,200 a person for COVID relief. Keep in mind, <clears throat> people are going hungry. They're near, they're homeless or about to become homeless in the middle of a deadly pandemic. And these wealthy GOP members of Congress were so stingy that they couldn't justify payments of 1200 each. Keep in mind, though, I believe an estimate we spend about is it six billion a day for the bloated military industrial complex? Mind you, the same military industrial complex whose basically their security was hacked and rendered useless. I'd say we didn't get much for our money. This is about the fact that in this country, and Reverend Barber stated this, and he's right. We never completed reconstruction to make amends and reparations for the evil crimes of slavery. Not only did we not complete reconstruction, but we implemented Jim Crow, which basically perpetuated the state of inequality. So, now we're dealing with people that are being harmed directly by, according to Dr. Barber, Reverend Barber, by racism, poverty, environmental degradation, and the war economy. So the new Poor People's Campaign is a national call for moral revival. Do I think Jesus, Christmas Eve, would have joined Reverend Barber? Yes, I do. And as a Jew, I can say this because what Jesus preached came straight from Torah. That which is hateful when done to you due to no other. All the rest is commentary. Go learn it, live it. So, oh, excuse me. <coughs> We're not going silent, I'm just coughing. <coughs> Sorry, folks. So, this is what we're dealing with. Reverend Barber was on Democracy Now! in 2018, you know, once again. Um, and we know what Reverend Barber's about now, okay? Um, but in this particular show, Reverend Barber talked about his Poor People's Campaign and how the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris is the co-chair. So, to quote Reverend Barber, I'm just going to read straight forward because it's all so good. So he's talking about how these politicians 
are they're claiming they're doing a good job. To quote, they've never repented in word or in deed. End quote. And so he says, so quote, here's the question. If you're supporting the policies of a racist xenophobe, in other words, Trump, what does that make you? And that's why we have to have a policy focus. Remember, it was Lindsey Graham, I believe, and others who came out quickly. Tim Scott against what happened in Charlottesville. And most politicians will be shrewd enough to do that. That doesn't mean they aren't white, white supremacists and white nationalists. The question is, Mr. Graham, Mr. Scott, who is black, because you can be black and be a white supremacist. At least you can be one who encourages it. And I think you can be in politics. Where do you stand on restoring the Voting Rights Act? You've had four years to do that. You do know that undermining the Voting Rights Act is white nationalism, white supremacy. Where do you stand on health care? Because you do know that when you cut health care, you hurt a large percentage of African Americans, particularly in your state. Where do you stand on living wages? Since 52% of African Americans make less than a living wage, and there's 64 million people that make less than a living wage in this country, less than $15 an hour, where do you stand on immigration reform? Because you know Richard Spencer declares that immigration is the first battle of white supremacists and white nationalists in the modern era. That's what he actually said. So the question becomes not are you loud like Trump and are you, do you carry on the antics of Trump? It's the policies. It's the policies of white nationalism and white supremacy. And with Mr. Graham, where do you stand on appointing Jeff Sessions, keep in mind this was in 2016, who has a history of standing against voting rights and trying to prosecute people fighting for voting rights. Where do you stand? Your committee, Mr. Graham, the committee you're on, allowed Thomas Farr to come through out of North Carolina to be, to almost make it to the federal bench, who is a known Nazi sympathizer and also a white supremacist who carried the work of Jesse Helms and is behind every voter suppression act in North Carolina. Okay. He called them out. Again, <clears throat> this Christmas Eve, what would Jesus do? <clears throat> so, what, um, Reverend Barber, who's actually a bishop, went on, and he talked about uh, what Amy Goodman called worrisome nominees to the judiciary. And he said, quote, well, and I want to step back from Trump because I'm trying to work on that. I think we're too Trumpy. So, yes, in the article I did say Trump, but I also pointed out, and some people missed this, Thomas Farr would have never gotten to the judiciary if it wasn't for Senator Richard Burr and Senator Tillis from our state. By the way, Senator Tillis was the architect of the voter suppression when he was Speaker of the House who denied two black women, women a former Supreme Court justice in North Carolina and a federal prosecutor in North Carolina they denied them even getting a hearing. They didn't even allow them to get a hearing. And then once Trump, Trump, Trump gets in, they push forward Farr's name. So we can't just lay this reality of what we're seeing at the feet of Trump. Trump is a symptom of a deeper moral malady. I agree. <clears throat> I'm going to read that again. Trump is a symptom of a deeper moral malady. If he was gone tomorrow or impeached tomorrow, the senators and the House of Representatives and Ryan and McConnell and Graham and all of them would still be there. And what we have found when we look at them, no matter how crazy they call him or names they call him or anger 
they get with him. It's all a front because at the end of the day, they might disagree with his antics, but they support his agenda. And he called it. He just called it what it was. So there's another article, we won't time to go through it all, in the New York Intelligencer, written by Reverend Barber. And it's William Barber too in the MLK Legacy of Church-Based Activism. And everybody thinks of progressives as being these college students that are far to the left and party city. That's not the history. The history of progressivism actually comes from people of faith that happen to be leftists. The fact is you can't separate environmental justice from justice itself. And Reverend Barber is the clarion messenger for a true morality and justice, not unlike certain charismatic black politicians. Reverend Barber tells people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. <coughs> you know, he would, he would basically say, what good is elevating a handful of black politicians if they do nothing to elevate the rest? If they go along with this system of white supremacy and only tinker around the edges, we're far beyond politics of incrementalism. It won't work. And so he goes on, and at this point, you know, he's saying if he had to look for a national leader for an African-American political agenda, it wouldn't be Kamala Harris or Cory Booker or even journalistic icon Tahanisi Coates. And it wouldn't be um, Vangelis or activist Ray McKesson. It would be most likely North Carolina cleric and founder and this is, well, this article wasn't written by, it was written by Ed Calgar, I stand corrected. Then a little under the weather. According to Kilgore, the true leader would be William Barber II. Okay, Barber is a leader in the King tradition. And Barber insists on this theological challenge to white conservative evangelicals. Okay. He refers King's letter from a Birmingham jail where Dr. King challenged, quote, the narrowness and hypocrisy, end quote, of Southern white Protestant churches. So Barber accuses white conservative evangelicals of liberalism, but a type of liberalism where they get to pick and choose biblical justifications for their conservative biases all the while that they ignore the most important gospel injunction to care for the poor and the outcast. In fact, uh, Reverend Barber wrote a book along with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove titled The Third Reconstruction, Moral Mondays, Fusion Politics, and the Rise of a New Justice Movement. And this is the real deal. Keep in mind, Jesus took care of a leper that no one else would touch. Again, what would Jesus do? This Christmas Eve, it's not about presents under the tree. And it's not about all this material, all these material goods. It's about a life that was supposed to be a symbol of kindness and humanity 
and fair play, what would Jesus do? You can't separate environmental justice from everything else. What would Jesus do? I know I've talked a lot about a variety of different things tonight. I threw this together pretty quickly because I just, this came to me last minute. I can't profess to know exactly what Jesus would do. But if there's a model of his teaching, it would be the Reverend Dr. William Barber II, along with the, the late Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., along with someone I consider a Jewish icon, Hillel the Sage. This is my humble opinion. There can't be environmental justice unless our laws reflect actual, meaningful justice, which is based in fairness and equity across the board. Attempting to separate environmental issues from every other aspect of true justice is almost impossible. So this is why my report tonight delves so deeply into true justice on every issue. And I remind everybody what Reverend Barber said, quote, in the richest society in human history, nearly half of the population lives in poverty or is struggling to make ends meet, end quote. Indeed. And that is our greatest shame on this Christmas Eve, allowing such a system of injustice to continue is definitely not what Jesus would do. Merry Christmas to everybody. And um, and I wish everybody a wonderful year, hopefully full of blessings and a sense of a calling to that idea of equal justice, kindness, compassion, and love for our fellow human beings. Good night. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.